icy snow in the high Sierra now. Oh, it's liquid gold for California's water supply this summer. Will the latest storm stave off the worst drought in California history? And do heavy winter snows mean flood woes for the Red River Valley this spring? We'll check the water levels and the spring flood outlook. From lettuce on your table to sandbags around your home, the good and not-so-good side of snow, today on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Paul Hutner. Dr. Mark Seeley is here along with Craig Edwards. And you guys, I got to say, it is a beautiful, classic late winter day here in Minnesota. We've got the bright sunshine, the nice deep blue sky, and uh, a fresh coating of snow on the landscape just a little bit. Some of those shallow cumulus clouds out there with the cold air pouring in. Does it get any more picturesque than this in winter? It is nice, Paul, and you know the encouraging thing is with each passing day and certainly each passing week, I'm noticing the difference in the day length now. And that sun angle, which is up there today, even melting a little snow on my asphalt driveway, it's getting so strong. Craig, what about you over at the Weather Lab South? Well, we used to say, Paul, over at the Bureau, you can't beat the warmth of the late February sun. And indeed, we had the snowfall uh, last evening and a half an inch to an inch. And uh, on the sun-exposed areas, we're already seeing that dissipate. So uh, indeed, the warmth of the late February sun, I'd rather have the warmth of the late June sun, though. (laughs) It's on the way. That's the good news. We're on the good side of the curve. Hey, some interesting weather headlines this week, you guys. The big story, of course, the massive California storm system. Heavy rain, mountain snow buried the Golden State this week, and that's a good thing. Mark, the system was timely, and it was widespread. It sure was. You know, uh, people were a little down in the mouth after what December and January delivered out there, but uh, now at least the NOAA Climate Prediction Center is suggesting that this pattern may favor wetness right through about the second week of March. So I would guess that's a good sign for them. In what appears to be a cost-cutting measure from the FAA, they plan to remove their on-site meteorologists from 21 air traffic control centers, including Minneapolis, where the controllers are responsible for air traffic in all or part of nine states. All meteorologists will be consolidated into one of two facilities in Kansas City and Maryland, and that will remove the face-to-face interaction controllers currently share with the meteorologists. Craig, I know you have some experience in this area. This looks like another economic consolidation. How important is it to have a meteorologist right next to the people who control our air traffic? Well, Paul, you'd probably really like to have a meteorologist right there in a the cockpit. But, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to, trying to put this in perspective, Paul, started back in 1978. And back then, uh, there was an instance when I was at Indianapolis where we had a lot of thunderstorms approaching the airport and in and around the vicinity of Indianapolis. And I called over there to coordinate from the forecast office. And uh, they said, we're going home. Nine o'clock, we, uh, FAA doesn't pay us overtime. So here's the thing that's important to public safety, yet they were, they're not full-time, 24-hour-a-day operations. And I think the National Weather Service has already proven that we can restructure and modernize cost-saving effect. And uh, I'd like to go with the president's yes, we we can. I think we can do this without compromising public safety because they've been studying this, Paul, for five or six years, and they went to the mm-hmm. union and says, here's how we'd like to do it. Give us your idea. And essentially their idea was keep it the same. Well, interesting stuff, and we'll, we'll be watching how that goes. As we know, our uh, everybody who gets on an airplane 
wants that weather support, and hopefully it will be there when we need it. In another headline, another apparent financial move here locally, the Star Tribune here in the Twin Cities has parted ways with longtime meteorologist, and I should disclose, a bit of a colleague and friend of mine, Paul Douglas. Douglas penned the Stribs weather page since the early 90s, Now, my alma mater, WCCO, is now supplying the content for the Stribs weather page. And according to David Brower's blog at MinPost, WCCO is paying the Strib to provide weather content. This is an interesting turn of events, guys. Mark, do you have any perspective on this? Boy, that's a twist, Paul. I I don't know. I mean, maybe they're uh, either trying to stabilize or maybe even build viewership by having a WCCO presence on the everyday newspaper, because that is the most subscribed newspaper uh, in Minnesota. So, But, uh, yeah, that is an interesting twist. After all these years of, uh, of having Paul do it, I might add, and I think most of you agree with me, he did a great job in that capacity. Yeah, he did. He's got the gift, and uh, we'll certainly miss him, but we know he has uh, other outlets going on. He's a busy guy. Well, anyone who has spent any time in the West knows winter storms are critical to water supplies there. California is staring down the barrel of what some are saying could be the worst drought in state's history. Some of the state's biggest reservoirs are around 50% full, and there is concern that below-average snowpack in the high Sierras will be inadequate to replenish demand. Alyssa Lynn is a senior meteorologist with the California Department of Water Resources, and she joins us today from Sacramento. Alyssa, uh, hi, welcome to Jet Streaming. Good to be here. Let's start with the good news. It seems to me that this latest storm was a critical one for you guys. I see, I see the storm dumped rain by the inch in the valleys and snow by the foot in the mountains. How much did you get and how much will it help water supplies this year? Well, I'd like to start with a cheery note and make that sound great, but it's not enough, so I'll start by saying that. Uh, We did end up with 6 to 10 inches in some places of liquid precip, so, you know, you melt that out. Some places it came as rain and some as snow, and some of it, uh, the bulk of it, in great places, like right above our North State reservoirs. And you mentioned some are at at 50%. Some are as low as 30% of capacity, the big Mm -hmm. ones that maybe people have seen, you know, in, in photographs of the state, Shasta Reservoir, Oroville, and Folsom, which is near Sacramento, they're around one-third full. So you don't go from nearly the worst drought in California history to a drought busting in one storm system like that. And, and we know that, or at least I do from having spent time out in the West. How many more storms like this one would you need the rest of this uh, snow season before you might get into a significantly better situation? Yeah, our season is um, more than halfway through now. I mean, the bulk of our precip only occurs in the winter, so that's when we have to capture it and store it for the summer. So we've really gone through much more than half of our season. January was the eighth driest on record for the state, so even though we had this, it's a little late. And we calculate that we'd need at least four, probably five more storms, just like what we had, to end this season even normal. And that would not necessarily make up for the last two before that, which were much drier than average. Our runoff both the two years past was between 50 to 57 percent of normal two years in a row. And this year, in spite of the storms, we're still calculating that's all we'll see from the runoff. Alyssa, uh, Mark Seeley here. I I just wanted to ask a a little bit further detail of you. Uh, The NOAA Climate Prediction Center uh, does favor for much of the state of California uh, into the second week of March to be wetter than normal. Now, I know there's been some years where your wet season has extended into April as well. I think Mm -hmm. typically it really shuts off in May, doesn't it? 
Yeah, usually by, by May we're pretty much done, and we have had miracle marches in the past, and we could use one. Uh, we tend to look at the April 1 snow content to sort of give us an idea of what's going to happen. But last year, for example, April 1 snowpack was 100% of normal. We had, you know, great storms in the middle of the winter, but it shut down so badly thanks to La Nina, which we could chat about. But we had a second-half shutdown that we wouldn't like to see this year, and we had the driest spring on record and ended up with our runoff still extremely low, about half of normal. So, um, you know, things we'd like to see them turn around. Uh, the rest of the spring could bring additional big storms. There's certainly still that possibility. And the hydrologists that have been around a long time keep telling me, you know, don't, don't, don't count it yet. We're not over yet. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards, and it seems like when I watch these storms come in from the Pacific, it's always uh, it's always a storm. It's not uh, just a rain event. There, <laughs> and it, I, it just bothers me that the media always turns this around and looks for a conundrum here, like a a mudslide or something. But it really is favorable precipitation when you guys receive that amount of precipitation. Unfortunately, it seems to come as these big storms that you know do cause a mudslide because you've had these wildfires and droughts. So can you can you really have precipitation out there without it becoming some sort of conundrum that would be nice and then try to explain to the people here like i have to that we could have a flood and a drought at the same time um because that's possible too we just need the winds in the right direction to get that orographic lift and, and see things really pick up um in the sierra uh, a nice south wind will put a lot up into the north state where shasta is and a southwest flow for the rest of the sierra but that same wind orientation causes mudslides in central and southern california so you know we have a, a tough state it's a, it's a big place the precip is so varied in terms of when it falls and where it falls. You know, it's always a challenge and seems to be getting more so. Aly- Alyssa, let's talk about how you measure water content uh-huh. in the snow. I, 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 we know about Snowtel, uh, the automated uh, sites that measure that content. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume you take snow course. Tell us a little bit about some of the methods and techniques you're using to estimate that water content that you'll be able to benefit from later this year. Sure. People most often think about snow as it piles up and how many feet high is it, and uh, that's not necessarily the factor. Sometimes you'll get a wet Sierra cement, we call it, a really big, heavy, wet snow. Sometimes you get a dry, light, fluffy snow. So what we try to measure out of that is how much ultimately would run off, make it into the ground. So that's why we use the water content. Um, We have snow pillows that are sensors that are giant pads really like a kind of a big bathroom scale in some remote locations in the Sierra and those will weigh the uh, water content, weigh the snow and let us know about how much those see but they're less accurate than the actual course measurements where um, several times throughout the winter over 200 places up and down the Sierra are measured manually by hand and those are much more accurate they trudge up there sometimes um, helicopters have to drop them, there's a lot of snowshoes that happen, it's not just the water resources department uh, but um, forestry services that also help with these uh, snow course measurements. But they'll go up there and um, take a big, long metal rod, um, 8, 10 feet long, and uh, it's hollow. And they vertically shove it into the ground till they reach the earth itself, pull it back up and weigh that, and then they know how much the pipe weighed uh, before you started, and they can weigh how much the snow that's inside there would weigh out and turn into water equivalent. So we track those uh, monthly all the way through the spring. Uh, we're set to do another course measurement here on March the 2nd, and certainly we hope for you know a better result than we had after the first measurement. Alyssa, I'd like to uh, shift gears briefly and uh, talk uh, talk about California California agriculture for a second. I know agriculturally California is a world player. It almost mm-hmm. is a standalone economy when we think yeah. about production and export. In terms of the uh, irrigation uh, 
permits and appropriations for this coming uh, spring and summer. Uh, are there already restrictions or limits in play, or or do you foresee that more of these will come into play? Yeah, a couple of things there. Um, first off, you know, economically we will be, you know, adversely affected without question in the state if we have a third dry year, which we seem to be having right now already. And there are a lot of ag producers that have already had to make the decision, you know, what is our supply going to be? They have to decide whether or not to plant at this point. And economically, a report um, just came out a few weeks ago that um, portends and worries of up to 40,000 job losses due to the agricultural impacts, on top of what we're already seeing economically as a state that I'm sure everyone's heard of. We have plenty of crises here uh, on the West Coast lately. Um, Our initial allocation from the state water project was the second lowest in history. In December, we projected to be only able to deliver about 15% of what was requested from these users of the state water project water, and much of that is agriculturally used. So coming up this Friday, we will um, be announcing whether or not we can even maintain that 15% of the rain that will be factored in you know did it boost things probably not substantially we may even have to lower it there and then the federal uh the united states bureau of reclamation will also be making their allocation announcement this coming friday so we'll be watching for um what they are set to announce which apparently could be as low as a zero percent allocation for the federal water from the central valley project to the ag users Well, Alyssa, it's uh, great to talk to you today. We are hoping that we send uh, more precipitation your way. You know, I spent some time in Arizona, and there's a saying there. It says you're as welcome as rain because (laughs) rain is a good thing. And uh, we hope you get a number of more storms. Uh, Alyssa Lynn from the California Department of Water Resources, thanks for sharing your insight on jet streaming today. Sure, enjoyed it. Thanks. Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu, but remember the Red River Valley and the girl that has loved you so true. Okay, so now we know that snow in the mountains in California can be a good thing, but when you live in a really flat, wide river valley... Too much snow can spell disaster. That's why meteorologists and hydrologists from all over the Midwest are watching the Red River of the North again this year. Heavy snows and high water content in eastern North Dakota will melt away soon, and that could mean flooding for the Red. Steve Buen is with the North Central River Forecast Center, and he joins us today from Iowa, where he's attending a conference on the 2008 floods. Steve, welcome to Jet Streaming. Hi, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. Good to have you and good to talk with you again. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. What what are you doing down in Iowa? What's going on down there today? Well, I was invited uh, by a a group here at Iowa State and the University of Iowa and and NOAA Climate Services to uh, talk about uh, the long-range predictions that we do, the outlooks, those out there there like 90 days in advance and and just how much uh, value there is in that and how we can communicate to that to folks that they're under a risk of flooding. Uh, some people felt maybe in the 2008 floods that the kind of, uh, you know, they kind of caught them maybe not by surprise, but by that they really didn't know that there was something was potentially coming. So uh, there's a diverse group of people in various agencies of government that are exploring ways to better inform people further in advance. Well, let's talk about the Red River Valley of the North a little bit. Where do we stand now with snow cover and water content uh, in that watershed? Well, up in the Red River of the North watershed uh, south of Fargo, which would be the upstream region, uh, we've got uh, quite a snowpack up there. 
uh, snow depths are anywhere from a foot to two feet, and the water contents there are three to four inches of water content, which is a pretty good amount for this time of year. Uh, maybe a little bit less water content as you move north or downstream, um, maybe more in that two to three inches. But really, one of the signature things of the, that watershed is the extremely wet fall that they had. The September, October, and November time period was an historic wet period. Yeah, uh, Steve, I, Mark Seeley, I was looking at that the other day in some of our summaries, and particularly the north end of the valley was um, of extraordinarily wet in that, in that uh, fall period. And, of course, now they have frost down. Uh, the latest uh, reading I got up there is a frost down around 40 to 42 inches. So uh, all that soil is frozen up right now. And uh, what do you see, or uh, is it too early? What What do you see in the next, uh, oh, 30 days or so as far as uh, precipitation across that region? Well, right now, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the official climate outlooks uh, – for the area are uh, just kind of an equal chances of having above or below normal uh, precipitation. But uh, I think uh, the entire Midwest here has had kind of a, or the upper Midwest has had a little bit of a lull here in the winter here. We have had, haven't had much precipitation in the last six weeks. And uh, we all know that uh, those things don't go on forever. And that uh, I think we're due for a few shots of precipitation here in the next 10 days. And, um, and we'll have to see where that goes. We're, Right now, the National Weather Service is out looking a, a, a significant probability of seeing a flooding in the Red River Valley, and uh, uh, view, viewers or listeners uh, should uh, pay attention. We're going to have a, the official public outlooks will be um, a week from Friday on the 27th. Hey, Steve, this is Craig Edwards here. Let's let's try to go back a little bit to 1997 when we had snow very deep up in that area, and we ended up with the, the 51 foot crest up there earlier this winter you you were very concerned about the water content that was in the soil and the the fact that there could be up to a 90 percent likelihood of major flooding and that seems to have come down a little bit based on the sparse precipitation the last month or so what what do you consider now about the probability of reaching that major flood stage of about 50 feet oh in in grand forks um in, in Grand Forks, I think that you know the probability is a little bit lower because of that lower water content that, that I talked about north of Fargo. But I think in the in the Fargo area, we're still looking at the and, and a fairly high probability. We will start uh, crunching the numbers on that actually uh, this Friday in preparation for releasing that outlook the following Friday. Um, but I don't expect that the, in that Fargo Moorhead area for uh, the uh, probabilities of major flood stage to change too much. I think. Uh, I think we're, we're just kind of it'll, it may, there may be some fine tuning in that it may move a few percent either way, but I, I don't I think because that river flows north we haven't been able to get rid of in this little thaw period we had here we we haven't really gotten rid of any moisture out of the watershed it's it's changed form it might change from snow to ice but it's still there and it's just waiting to be acted upon and and I'm going to remind folks we we've got about six more weeks of winter potentially up in the Red River Valley and uh, a lot a lot of things can happen then. And and so and that's what our probabilities reflect is that there's a there's a diverse set of circumstances that occur between now and and the melt, and they're pretty much all encompassed in that in that probability spectrum. We're almost surely going to get flood stage in, in Fargo and Grand Forks. It's just that range of how high up it goes will be fine-tuned here over the next six weeks as the rest of the winter plays out. Let's talk best and worst case scenarios here uh, for weather the next few weeks. Uh, 
what are they? Is it uh, obviously a nice slow melt with little additional precipitation, perhaps the best case scenario? What about the worst case scenarios? Well, the worst case scenario would be to get, you know, to get several inches of precipitation, whether it be in snow or rain. Likely it would be snow in the next six weeks, but uh, the average precipitation in the Red River Valley is probably on the order of an inch to an inch and a half in the March time frame or over the next four weeks. Uh, if we were to see something like two to three inches of precipitation, that would obviously skew us to having a, a, a larger flood. Um, if it stayed cold over the next six weeks where we were not able to melt any snow or get any stream flow going from the current water that's on the ground, if that melt was delayed into that first, second week of April, that would not be a good thing. It pushes us further into the potential convective rain season. Um, which is what happened in 1997 is the melt was extremely late. We got into that heavy convective precipitation season. So, uh, we'd, yeah, we'd like to see a, a melt in March, an early melt. It would tend to be uh, less precipitation, and we could uh, dampen the flooding. But we feel that there's enough hydrologically wa- active water in the watershed to produce flooding uh, to some extent over the entire valley, no matter really what the scenario is. Oh, Could you tell ahead. our listeners what you have done at the River Center in regards to changing the models, uh, forecasting the river stage and the river crests? Because I think in the 1997 flood, there was something learned about what they call overland flooding. Could you tell our listeners what that might contribute to the flooding? Well, overland flooding is when it, you get water that is you know hydraulically it's trying to go in one path and and it's prevented from going there so it has to find a new pathway a new area of lower ground to move and we have developed some hydraulic models that allow us to to um, in essence back that water up and find that it may find another pathway so we've gone from um, what we call a lumped or point-to-point model, which may move water from, say, Fargo to Halstead to Grand Forks. And now we actually have models that actually take it in, in much smaller ch- chunks downstream. And so we can actually see what's going to happen between Fargo and Halstead and between Halstead and Grand Forks, and we can actually see where that water potentially could go on the landscape. Uh, Steve, I wanted to also emphasize that uh, not only have we made progress in the forecasting of spring snowmelt floods since the uh, famous events of 1997, but thanks to the good work of the Association of Floodplain Managers and many others, I think the landscape has been transformed a little bit to mitigate those flood threats. If I'm not mistaken, we've moved properties uh, out of the floodplain We've cleared obstructions out of drainage areas. Uh, we've we've uh, cleaned up holding areas. We've done. There's been a lot of work done along the Red River watershed, which should, uh, by all accounts, help mitigate any flood threat. Is that not correct? Right. Yeah. And I think I think some of those things were evidenced in the in the 2006 episode, where uh, the crests were up there in the top five, I believe. Um, in all time uh, crests, but uh, for a lot of folks, it was uh, it was almost like, well, uh, it's not really, it's not causing me many problems. Whereas it, if that had occurred, say prior to 1997, if that level of crest had occurred, uh, you would have seen a lot more activity and it would have been a lot more inconvenience. So um, yes, as we learn more about these things and are more proactive at at doing uh, uh, doing uh, building our public infrastructure and such to uh, mitigate uh, these things that it, be- it becomes, it in one way takes it out of the public consciousness, but then when we get Mother Nature deals us hand in, in, of cards that we really can't really work with, 
then then we, we the public complacency could get us in trouble. So uh, it's up to the uh, public and private partnerships to keep the public informed that uh, that there are risks, even though the mitigation may alleviate it for most of us. Well, Steve, uh, we appreciate what you do and keeping an eye on these rivers for us. Uh, Steve Buen from the North Central River Forecast Center, thanks for keeping us on high ground today. <laughs> All right, thanks for having me on. Thunder, uh, not a common feature here yet in the upper Midwest, but it will be in just a couple of months. Uh, it means here on Jet Streaming that we have a website this week, and today it's Craig's turn. Craig, what do you got for us today? Well, after all this talk about what's going on in the red, uh, Steve also told me that uh, the probability of reaching Bankful on the Mississippi River in St. Paul is very low because we we're essentially have dry conditions here in southeast Minnesota. But how, how about if we play the game fairly? We talked a little bit about the drought in California. We talked about the red. How about we go to drought.unl.edu so you can monitor the uh, water content across the country. So that's drought.unl for the University of Nebraska at Lincoln.edu. So you have all the information you need on water resource management. Good stuff. Uh, a nice place to stop as well. And we we also like to do a little jargon on uh, jet streaming every week. And Mark, you got a doozy today. This is one I've never heard before. <laughs> Bring it on. It's an old timer, <laughs> Paul. Uh, Poganip. Uh, it's a P-O-G-O-N-I-P. It's a Native American term used in the western states, notably Nevada and California, since we were talking about the western uh, uh, hydrology situation mm-hmm. today. Uh, and it, in, in, in straight translation, it, it translates to painted, a painted landscape. But in this particular case, what it refers to is when you have freezing fog in those mountain valleys along the Sierra Range, and it paints the landscape. It leaves a coat of white on everything. Like a hoarfrost. Exactly. Like what we call in the Midwest a hoarfrost. And uh, the other interesting feature in terms of a kind of belief system, if you will, about Paganip is that the Native Americans who lived out there in uh, those landscapes also believed that it was harmful, that it had some harmful effects, that it wasn't good to breathe freezing fog. It might... <laughs> you know, do something, violate the lungs or whatever. Right. So there's a lot written uh, in the in the folklore literature about that sort of thing, but I thought it'd be an interesting one to throw out there since we were talking about those Western landscapes today. It is fascinating. Uh, Paganip, great word, Mark. You know, we love to hear from our jet streaming listeners, so please feel free to send us your comments. Uh, just go to minnesotapublicradio.org and click on programs in the jet streaming website. A listener feedback today from Jim, and Jim says, I think last spring had a similar La Nina status, and we had a cold March in April. Given this information, would you predict a slightly cooler-than-average March this year? And, of course, as we pointed out, NOAA is forecasting equal chances uh, in terms of temperatures for, for the upcoming month. Mark, what do you think? You know, I, I, I've i been saying uh, to most of the people in the Western Great Lakes region, I think we are in for a sustained winter. I, I, I don't think we're going to snap out of it, as has been our bent in recent years, snap out of it and have a warm spring. And my, my premise for this is a variety of things, but first and foremost, Paul, is the high-latitude air this year over the North American continent has dominantly been cold. It's dominantly been, It's been dominated by cold air masses. 
those cold air masses are still very present up there. And as we know, weather disturbances in the mid-latitudes can drag those down. And I see more of that happening in the months ahead. It is still 60 below in Siberia. I know that uh, with a recent <laughs> check. And as we know, it doesn't take much for that air to come this direction. Now, granted, at this time of year, it's not going to be nearly that cold. But you're right. There's still a cold pool of air up there. Craig, what do you think? Any uh, insight? Well, I go along with the expert on that one, Paul. I guess what, <laughs> after hearing all this, what we need to see is these storms move into California, dump some precipitation, and then stay south of the Red River Valley and give us some precipitation here in the Minnesota River Valley area. Well, I'm going to be the odd man out on this one, and, and uh, people need to understand that this part of our science is very dicey, and I cannot say this with a lot of confidence, but what I'm seeing in the medium-range weather patterns and the positioning of these upper-level troughs that tend to be semi-persistent features is that we're, we're starting to favor more of an upper-level low over northwest Canada or the Gulf of Alaska. And that can be a mild pattern for us, or at least an average pattern, where we can prevent a lot of that cold air from coming down. So I'll, I'll go ahead and say March will be average or perhaps slightly above average. And We'll all reconvene the first part of April, and uh, you guys can whack me over the wrists. Yeah, we'll have to bring our red pins to that, <laughs> right. to that meeting. <laughs> well, great discussion as always, you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, Paul. That wraps this week's Jet Streaming. Thanks for listening. Our producers are P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle. Our sound engineer is Randy Johnson. I'm Paul Hutner. Remember to keep an ear here to Jet Streaming and keep your weather eye on the sky. Here comes.